Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by Yaron Lipschitz, Artistic Director and CEO of Circa. Yaron is a graduate of the University of New South Wales, University of Queensland, and National Institute of Dramatic Arts, where he was the youngest director ever accepted into its prestigious graduate director's course. Since graduating, Yaron has directed over 60 productions, including large-scale events, opera, theater, physical theater, and circus. His work has been seen in more than 40 countries and across six continents by over 1.5 million people. Yaron tells us about how he came to the circus, what he looks for in artists, and how he created a new work called Leviathan, co-commissioned by Stanford Live. If you were in the San Francisco Bay Area, see Leviathan at Stanford Live September 30th and October 1st. Tickets are available at live.stanford.edu or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're so glad we were able to work around our time zone differences. You know, of course, you were in Australia, I believe, just was it last week? And I was looking into the times and it was like one of us was going to be getting up at 3 a.m. So I'm glad you're (laughs) on the West Coast now. And we are both, we are all awake and on the same day, which is a, you know, is a great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're really glad to have you on today. And we really wanted to just kind of start at the beginning and find out a little bit about how you became interested in the arts to start with. Uh, it's a great question. I, I, I came to the arts as a calling. I, someone said something and it sort of stuck in my brain. I had no, uh, and still have no natural talent for these things. I can't act, I can't sing, I can't move in any meaningful sense of the word except the, the refrigerator and back on a good day. Um, <laughs> but what I what I loved were, were two things that appealed to me immediately. One was this was a world, and it was a world for people who had committed, who had turned up for the same reasons, who put 
the same thing on and that this kind of back-of-house world and London stage world, audience world, would meet on this stage and something would happen. And the second thing that I always felt was that there was a, an electricity, something that the lights went down. There was a, a moment when magic was possible. Um, then the lights came up and generally I found a middle-aged, middle-class couple talking about their alcoholic son or daughter and I got immediately bored. So I started to kind of wonder how could we, how, how might that turn out differently? Could we keep the electricity alive? I'm wondering what what direction were you thinking? I mean, you're, you're, you're claiming you allegedly had no natural inclination, but you felt like, when did you kind of realize that directing or, or conceptualizing art was something that you did have a, a knack for? Yeah, this was around kind of grade 10, sort of a couple of years before we finished school, uh, before we finished school. And I, I just, I started doing internships and, getting out of doing sport to go and work in theatre companies and learn about lights. I like the kind of materiality of, of a light and the, the beam that came out of one end and the way you can shape it. And just kind of all of the bits that go into making a theatre and I, I volunteered and did stuff. And, you know, I'm a reasonably quick learner, so I picked things up and was able to kind of, I just love the, the world and I love the texture of it. I love the, the feeling. You know, there were serious people who came to do, you know, I think what is a, an important uh, cultural kind of journey, uh, something that uh, do, do something that had some sort of import, even if it was funny and light and fluffy, you were still bringing light and entertainment and connection and meaning into people's lives. And that felt like a good thing to do. Um, and not being able to do anything, there were only two possible options for me. One was to direct. Um, and teaching, which I do, I, I love, but I always felt like it was, it was for me, it's a secondary thing. It's kind of, it's one removed from the, the actual way of making the work. And I, right. I, you know, as soon as I started directing, I went, this is, this is what I was born to do because it, it uses every part of me. You know, you have to be a, a, a painter, a sculptor, a psychologist, a, a friend, a, a boss, um, you know, a, a dramaturg. You have every part of your your intellect and spirit gets called on and whatever you bring, it's still not going to be enough. And I, I like that sense that I like, I'm much better in a space of learning and grappling than knowing what I'm doing. I, I've never walked into a rehearsal room and felt like I know what I'm doing or that I have a right to be. I, I kind of feel like that's a place that works well for me. Right. right. So what were some of your first directorial opportunities? It seems like I, I'm wondering, did you have any straight play experience, even though you're saying the, the, the you know, the straight play about a middle-aged alcoholic yeah. son was not your bag eventually. <laughs> but did you have to go through some of that? Oh, I went through a lot of it. In fact, I, I, I would say that I subjected an audience, mostly my family, because there weren't necessarily very many audiences to a lot of it. Um, yeah, I, I like all good directorial students. I started with, with you know the works of Brecht and Beckett, the kind of the, the comic classics from the you know the, wow the audience. I mean, we would. I mean, I was making very a lot of student theatre. I, I directed. We had a, a very generous kind of student and very good drama department where I went to the university at University of New South Wales. Um, so you know, I got to direct eight. While I was in my undergraduate years, 
Then I went to the National Institute of Dramatic Arts and did a directing course there, and that's very much a play-focused directing course. And so I learned, I thought, at the time, work with actors and scripts and dramaturgs and writers and, and designers and did that for did that course and then graduated and started as a play director. And then after a while, it became pretty clear to me that my plays were boring. <laughs> and I, then I realised that, that drama, as I had been taught to think about it as a sort of uh, awkward um, sort of bookshelf in the in the, the the canon of literature was not where I thought theatre should come from. And I have to say that, that these opinions are only uh, from me. Like when I see a great director handling a great play, it's just wonder and beauty. I just know that's not my my way of working. Yeah. So I, I did that, and I, I also at the time started to develop a lot of interest in, in music, which I again have you know the only instrument I play is a an iPhone or iTunes, and I do that <laughs> death, deftly. Um, <laughs> but I I started I started to work in in around opera and observe on operas, and I it's something that I continue to do, and I work a lot and crossover a lot with work music. So all those kinds of threads led to me. Um, First, they led me into the museum, world of museums. I became I was uh, like many young theatre directors was unemployed, um, mm-hmm. and, a, you know, and, a, and 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 the material, the crushing material circumstances involved trying to create work and, and become a creative I should never be understated. I mean, I I, I remember calling a, a dear friend of mine, a young at the time, Kate Blanchett, and we were both trying to find a. Do- we could meet up for a coffee and we were kind of shaking out the bottom of our bags to find the five cents. Uh, you know, I think I'm up to a dollar thirty-five. What have you got? You kind of seeing you know, back in the days of back in the days of coins. But that sort of, you know, I mean it, it sounds kind of glamorous now. And I I always had a you know a middle class family. I was never in kind of danger of hunger or being homeless. I was incredibly privileged. But the 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 challenge environment where you have to really be thinking about what you're doing every day and how you're going to survive. And that's something that often plagues artists through their whole careers. It's an incredibly difficult, difficult thing. And it's it's not some artists thrive under that pressure. Some artists humble and leave. And you know, I watch some of the best people, most talented people I ever trained with uh, or work with leave because they just couldn't sustain that kind of environment. I was lucky and you know, I've been lucky in a few places at an Australian museum, which is a sort of old natural history museum, a Smithsonian or American Museum of Natural History kind of museum rather than the funky art type, was looking for an artist in residence. So I went there and ended up setting up a theatre program and stayed there for five years and got to employ all my friends and do all sorts of shows and installations and exhibitions, work with big teams, work in a big public service institution. So I had a sense of how to manage egos and power dynamics that were really, you know, as a theatre director, you, you, you think you're, you're the boss when you're working in a small fly in a big institution and there's, you know, things that go wrong and codes and conservation standards and cultural protocols and all sorts of things and uh, stakeholders and donors. You learn a lot. So I did that. And then um, and then I went to, then I joined the circus. We want to get into that, but I do want to rewind just for a second. Um, I want to go back to your National Institute of Dramatic Arts Education. And um, you, 
uh, graduated with a graduate degree in the director's course. Is that correct? I just, I'm curious, like what kind of classes are you taking? Like what, what are you going through? What are they talking to you about? How broad is it? Are you looking at opera? Are you looking at ballet? Are you looking at the circus? Like what, tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Look, I think uh, I, I've taught there a lot, so I have a, and I have a great degree of interest in directorial pedagogy because I think it's something that is impossible and totally necessary at the same time. Um, uh, so I, we did classes. We started doing the actors' classes, and, and so you know, basic sort of voice movement, um, Stanislavski kind of dramaturgy and, and kind of directing. We worked in, we did the writing studios. We participated in the postgraduate writers program as writers. And some of us wrote, wrote plays, some of us morphed into d- directing and leading their, their writing. We assisted on a whole bunch of productions through the year and, and special projects. We made our own creations. Um, and I think the best thing was to have a, have a year and and then it goes on it sort of extends beyond the year, where for pretty much every week, uh, from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, and the days were, were kind of incredibly, I mean, we were nine to five, we'd see shows every night that we would be reading plays. Uh, it was kind of, I think I had one week's holiday between January and December. It was, it was that kind of a year. Right. But you're just self-obsessed. You know, I mean, what, you know, what, is, what is more boring than a final year, you know, academy student you know and the answer is nothing like you'd have to be just completely self-obsessed and 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 that process of introversion I mean, it's, it's terrible for anyone outside but for you it's absolutely necessary it's mm-hmm. a process of of immersion it's a process of kind of cooking of breaking apart of feeling your 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 knowledge and your kind of self-worth and your identity breaking down being reformed and that happening on a daily basis, you find gurus, you you kill gurus, you're in this constant kind of Oedipal maelstrom where you're constantly kind of trying to make love to and then kill a series of parental figures for a year. <laughs> um, and I, I, I kind of, my, my big mistake, I think, in retrospect, was thinking that when I finished that, we might it might be done. And I realised that I was, I realised subsequently that I was very much at the start. It would take me, I was very young when I graduated and I figured it, it probably took me another 10 or 15 years to really get my act together in some ways that I, I was mm-hmm. doing stuff, but it wasn't. I, I believed in or felt like I was meant to be doing. Yeah. So shifting now, like you mentioned, you started with the circus. So I am wondering, you did an interview where you said that the first like five to six years, you just got terrible reviews the whole time. And I just, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and also tell us like what you learned from that. I mean, as artists, we know there's nothing worse than a terrible review. We know artists who don't read them, right? Because they don't want it to even get in their head. I don't believe that's true. You don't believe it's true? I was just going to say, I think that's a lie. Yeah, I hear that. But I mean, look, I, my my instinct is that every artist reads reviews. They just some are uh, graceful enough not to tell people. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I came into a company called Rock and Roll Circus, and, and it was a very important company in uh, admittedly a fairly small field, Australian contemporary, more at that time sort of new circus in Australia. It had been pioneered by Circus Oz, and Rock and Roll was the kind of edgy adult company that. That almost as a kind of counterpoint to circus, because it is a bit feel good. Um, 
both social, both had a degree of social kind of engagement. But rock and roll was heavily influenced by uh, chaos. It was heavily influenced the French Nouveau Cirque kind of thing, where you had a lot of angle grinders on on metal G strings. That would seem to be a pretty much a price of admission. If you didn't do that, you weren't you weren't mm-hmm. show. Um, like many companies that had started as an ensemble, members had left. There were only one or two members of the original ensemble left. Mm. They were in a state of mission drift. They were about to lose their funding. They, they, we were, we're based in Brisbane, which is kind of like not the centre. So we they were off the radar a bit. There wasn't a lot else there. So they managed to keep funding, but only just. Mm-hmm. They'd been told by the, the funding bodies that um, they had to bring in an artistic director and they really didn't want one. So they chose me, which was probably a wise choice. It would seem like a wise choice. <laughs> um, I came in and went, this is a mess. There's, there's, it's culturally dysfunctional. It, it has um, a lack of artistic um, clarity and intent. And we need to do something. It can't clearly keep going like this. So I, I took a period of time. Uh, had to essentially outlast all the original members because they they were there by kind of birthright um, and gradually reshaped the company. And that process was very difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, I still was affordable people to do that. Um, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what kind of work we wanted to make. And when you come in as a theatre director to Circus, and you'll see this, this is single-handedly responsible for almost all the really dreadful kinds of things in my field. When theatre directors come to this, they bring all the stuff that they brought from theatre. They bring story and character and stern to that. And you bring all this stuff in and you go, wow, none of this works. It still doesn't <laughs> work. Yeah. You've got oh. people doing more interesting. You've created a kind of constant double focus where you're watching a play and then you're watching people do acrobatics. Mm-hmm. And it just never struck me as being authentic. And if someone, you know, if you you do a backfold of the splits, you're actually doing those things. They have a kind of um, ontological status. They are actually a thing, right. uh, you know, like you did that thing. But in a play, you're kind of pretending to be somebody else and say some words you didn't make up that about and you're not. Like it's not a thing. It's a kind of mm. imaginative projection of a thing. And those things struck me as being two very different levels of reality. I felt like we were kind of putting in plasterboard and painted flats around amazing bodies doing incredible things. So I became really um, influenced by the writings of William Forsythe when he was at Ballet Frankfurt. Um, not so much the production, although some of those works, I, I was fortunate enough to see the Dresden Semper Opera do the Estella Vogue, and I thought that piece to be as radical and thrilling as it is 35 years after it was made, I think is a testament to what a great genius Forsyth is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't the work, I hadn't seen the work at this stage, it was actually just the writing and the thinking about taking the traditional languages of something and making them contemporary, but kind of, you know, he talked about being contemporary ballet, not being contemporary dance, kind mm-hmm. of really working from tradition, heavily influenced me. But I wasn't there yet. So to go back to your question, when I started in, at, at Rock and Roll Circuses, as the company was called then, I was making shows that stank and then shows that kind of had interesting factors. And we went very radical, but we just, nobody knew what we were doing and we didn't really know what we were doing. Right. I think some of the most interesting and fearless work we made was then we learned to improvise with circuits. We made work that was out there. It was, you know, there's some work, the skills to do uh, could have been incredible. 
But at the same time, we're constantly sort of, you know, trying to develop the, the um, intellectual and, and artistic capacity, the physical skills, and circus is not a quick thing to develop new skills in. Um, bring an audience, find out who we are in the world, and all of that together is, you know, pretty complex to get right. I was lucky in terms of having enough time and space to do that. Um, but you know, there, there kind of wasn't an us. Like I look at companies now that have started particularly from Australia and gone, well, Circus created a sort of model for how help create a model for how you might do this, mm. how some of these things might happen. There wasn't, there weren't, no one else was taking Circus, stripping it right back, putting acrobats in, focusing on acrobatic languages as being as sites of meaning and articulate right. in and all of their own right. So, you know, we, we had to struggle and we got terrible reviews. I mean, we got, we really, there were moments when you thought, well, we probably are just doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I read them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about um, what made you eager to take the job if, you know, it's already outside of your wheelhouse and, I presume that coming on board, you knew, like you said, there was already a sense of mission drift and that the organization was going to need quite an overhaul. Um, are you just, you know, on board a for massacre. challenges? Yes. <laughs> well, I'm talking to two ballet dancers, so I don't need to talk to you about masochism. I mean, it, That's there right. Is, there, We're there, all in there, it together. Yeah, there's, there is no serious artist that does not have a serious strain of masochism in them. No, I, I had a very strong instinct that I needed to work in a genre that had clear rules. So one, of, one of the things that I always felt was if you open a door and inside the door is everything in the universe you possibly make art. Uh, so I, I, I would have a great deal of trouble making a show if you said, look, here's the opera, the ballet, the opera, everything, and you can just do whatever you want. I wouldn't know where to begin. And there were, at the time in Australia, there were three companies. There was Handmade Opera, which was a contemporary opera. There was Handspan Puppet Company that no longer exists, but doing interesting contemporary puppetry, and there was Rock and Roll Circus. And each one of them seemed to me to have a really defined set of bandwidth in which you could make work. And that kind of, just intuitively, I went, I need to go stay narrow and go deep rather than going wide. Um, and the first company that, that of them that advertised for an artistic director was Rock and Roll Circus, and somehow I blagged my way into the role. Um, <laughs> I I had been doing a bit of work in physical work and I, I, physical theatre. I'd be at the museum and we'd done a number of things. I, I like the kind of technicality. Of it. I like kind of working out bringing specifications and how not to bump people into each other. Um, and I also liked the, the kind of the immediacy and the energy of it. That felt good. I never understood um, a lot of the kind of inherited stuff. So, like, I just kind of never really got why you did things in certain ways, where the, all of these rules came from. And in many ways, I still don't. But it, but I'm, I'm I probably have a uh, less of a sense that um, you sort of maybe I. I'll put that differently. I, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm clearer now as to what I know and don't know, and I'm I'm not afraid to kind of recognise the validity of a lot of things that have been handed down. And that's because I've tried them in different ways, and sometimes they really don't work. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot, there is a lot of kind of beauty and, and knowledge and tradition in 
Right. I wonder what the learning curve was like for you um, coming into the circus and then for the artists, like acknowledging what's good. Cause I mean, if I went to the circus, I'd be like, wow, everything's amazing. Then I'm sure if I'm sitting next to you, you would say, here's these problems or here's something that happened. How did that learning curve kind of go? And how did you bring people in to help you with it? Uh, I have exactly the same thing with ballet. My wife trained as a dancer and I mm-hmm. said, oh, that, that looked good. And she just rolled her eyes. Terrible feet. You know, terrible feet. They look like people to stand on. Look, um, I, I used to uh, run fairly long distances and my one of my running buddies, the physiotherapist, described me as being like a diesel truck. It's like you, you can keep going, but you're not very elegant. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much my learning curve. You imagine diesel truck hauling a load up a large hill. There was this kind of you know bits for you know bits of gravel and stuff for things get like yeah, you have to, but it, a lot of effort. I I I I'm lucky. I like working in an ensemble format. I like having the same group of people. I don't necessarily like all of those people, and they definitely won't like me all the time. But I like the fact that I don't have to cast, I don't have to work with strangers or people. Um, we can develop a shorthand and we right. can go deeply. It also constantly means that I'm endlessly starting a series of relationships that I know are going to end. Mm-hmm. And at some point, they will, you know, everybody I work with will break my heart and leave at some point. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, an, that's an important part of their journey and, and a beautiful one, but it can be, it can be difficult. But that gave me the ability to just be present and stay and watch. And a lot of our work, we started, as I mentioned earlier, we started improvising with circus, really influenced by foresight. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we build a language for this? That took us a two to kind of figure out. And then um, through that process, you can part of my process became what did we observe? Getting everyone together and kind of reflecting on it as a kind of both on the process and on their own individual journeys through. But I never felt like I was looking at something that only I could see than the people that I was working with couldn't, but that we were really just observing. That feels great when that happens and that really doesn't work or that looks like. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We release tension or we keep faulting to certain times or certain kinds of pathways. Uh, how do we break it? And so we were kind of working together from a shared perspective. Um, and yeah, and, and a calibrated perspective. That process of actually calibrating, we all see the same thing here. You know? And if you're doing 
you know, advanced ballet training, you are all seeing the same thing. You know what a perfect version of that looks like, and you know right. you will never, you know you will never achieve it. The rest is just how much pain you're prepared to suffer, and at what point will you give up before you get before you get there? Yeah, right. How successful might you incidentally be along the way? Mm-hmm. So have that, but there are certain skills and there are certain ways of working. And we had to make find both the kind of the artistic material and the kind of training methodology and pedagogy, the artistic kind of ways of breaking things open. Um, and, and that sounds really kind of maybe abstract, but to, to put it on a really simple level, if you walk into a circa rehearsal studio in 2005 or if you walk into one, the only real difference you'll notice is that there's a different number of people. So in 2005, it was me and three acrobats, one thing they did. I tend to do is to make them smaller until I can mm-hmm. get a handle on them and then enlarge them. So I, we have three acrobats. Today you might find 10 or, or 20 acrobats in the room. You'll see them standing on either side of a, a set of mats or mats covered in, in Mali. Um, and you'll see them standing with their hands by their sides, their feet shoulder width apart, their, their knees and their buttocks relaxed, their mouths open, um, breathing oxygen, their eyes are alert. And then you'll see them doing the starting the next cycle walking jazz, which essentially is just a process of crossing space uh, and extending or opposing the kind of basic offers that are there until they get laid and mutate and morph and become physical or don't. We, we developed a theoretical framework called false space theory that allows kind of do things in take that material dramaturgically via kind of an audience perception theory. Um, but really, it starts, it goes back to a kind of character of like presence and treating the stage like it's a place of eaten importance of, you know, thinking about everything that you do on that space and uh, what comes before and after. And there's nothing kind of any other kind of performing arts. It's just what you then do with it. And at the core of circus, of course, is this extraordinary thing that happens that doesn't happen in any other form. Like every other form is as virtuosic in its own way, whether it's acting Shakespeare or, or playing the violin. But no other form, into the to play the violin, you need to be able to play the violin and play a certain set of notes, and then you can get up to playing the Zakhon for the D minor part and you're incredible, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing that defines our instruments, our kind of our, our medium, is the thing that you do, any member of the audience should feel like they could never do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it is, is the only thing that is the bar to entry in cir- that defines something as circus is it cannot be achieved by mortals. And so the, the, the genre, the standards are constantly kind of reflecting finding themselves and changing. There isn't a single canon or, or set of things called circuit. There is a there is a kind of body of pretty much anything you can do that nobody can conceive mm. they might be able to do it. Well we watched the video and we don't think we could do any of that. That's ah see, that's it. but that's that's all that's all smoke and mirrors. You guys can do anything. I believe but, I, I I love this train of thought though. I, I feel very passionately the same way about dance even though there is you know there are trends and things where people you know certain choreographers work in a very pedestrian way or they want it to look human or whatever but i i totally that's buy into what you're saying for for my art form you know it's that's what i want to see i want i want it to look like you've trained the past 20 years of your life because you have so why why would we then go backwards and you know do something that 
you know, grandma in the audience can also do. But that's, a, that's yeah. I don't want to derail the conversation, but I... No, I, no, no, no. But, no, but I, think it's, I think it's a super interesting point because to be, to be really clear, there is as much virtuosity, if, if not more, in any, in dance as there is in circuits or in opera singing or in orchestral music making or any of the forms. It has nothing whatsoever to do with skill, talent, time spent doing it mastery. That's absolutely given. Some art forms are clearly more virtuosic than others. So if you have even in something like you have like Mozart, which is um, seen as being you want a high virtuosity versus Rachmaninoff or list where you want to demonstrate your, your virtuosity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but circus has, there is no piano. There is no defined thing called a piano or a ballet step. The only thing that defines whether it's a circus act or not is whether the audience consciously and hold in its head the fact that it could not do this thing with this thing. Uh-huh. Mm. But you have to be able to do something with it that the audience thinks they couldn't do, right? And that's what defines it as circuit. So imagine you can walk into a room and say, well, it's not, I haven't trained in ballet or jazz or contemporary. I've trained in movement the audience couldn't do. And that links what I do with what you do. And, you know, like right. I can do anything for my repertoire, providing it has this kind of. So that by itself is curious, but it gets really interesting when you go, so how do you make a show out? Because mm. by, by, by almost by definition of production is something that an audience wants to have some kind of point of connection. Um, you know, and that for me is, is one of the kind of the key challenges and key opportunities of circuits. And my, my, kind of approach which would be predominantly acrobatic they're not it we we work in aerial space and i've done shows with juggling manipulation various other kinds of you know i've probably been through most of the circus disciplines at some point apart from animal work um but how do you you know in my case it was about contemporary practice it was about sort of improvisation about expressing things with themselves because ultimately I wasn't interested. I still am not very interested in um, impressing audiences. I mean, I hope they're impressed, but I'm much more. I'm much more concerned with how I move and connect with audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's talk about how you do put a show together. Um, we want to hear about what you have going on at Stanford Live, which opens September 30th, your um, show called Leviathan. Tell us about how this idea came about. It's co-commissioned by Stanford Live. Tell us about that process and then um, how you started putting it together. Uh, yeah, well, we are. I'm here in a dressing room at Stanford Live. It is one of the great American presenting institutions, and we've been very fortunate to work with Chris Galway and his team here, and they've been believers in this project since the beginning. Um, this is a nuts project. Like a lot of our shows are kind of mid scale, ten artists, two or three technicians, they tour easily. This is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I this, this project has a genesis in a number of different things. First of all, I wanted to see what a large number of people would do on stage, mm-hmm. uh, the complexity of it. But I didn't want to do a kind of um, unison sort of dance of Stedford piece where people act about the terrible at moving in time with each other. Um, mm-hmm. and, they, and, they hate, and they hate whenever I say, can you all run out and make a line, everyone groans. Oh. Um, <laughs> just go to bed. 
No, yeah, you know, this 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 piece would have been a lot easier to make with ballet company in some way. Um, <laughs> but I was interested in I was really interested in how complex things get and how quickly they get there. At the same time, I was really politically interested in, in it struck me that one very much believed that you needed to have society, you needed to have structure, you needed to have funding for the arts, rights to the you know, support medical care, all those kinds of things. And another group decided you needed to have something called freedom and that included being able to have a gun and making sure that um well it seemed like it seemed like the government should stay out of your business unless you were a pregnant woman in which case it should it should it should do its best to your business and i i was kind of curious not about just what i believe because that was seemed everybody had an opinion and that didn't seem like a very useful thing but more in terms of what was the the muscular part of the debate which was are we more free when we are alone and outside society, or are we or are we free when we are in structure and connection? And and mm-hmm. to my mind, um, you know, uh, it didn't make any it didn't make any sense to say there was a simple answer because it seems like it depends on what perspective you have. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of really crunch some of those some of that thinking. So the same freedom, the same structure that can you know, um, oppress you, the government having all of your medical records can free you. You don't have to lose your house if you are, God forbid, unlucky enough to get cancer mm. and a hospital bankrupts you. Can't be, in my mind, in any logical world, just be seen as freedom. Um, but both can exist in the, same, in the same time and even around the same kinds of circumstances. So I really wanted to make a show that kind of grappled with this without giving an easy answer because for me, there are no e- easy answers except for don't be evil. You know, don't be <laughs> don't be a insert your own expletive here. Yeah. And I wanted, to, and so I decided I was going to make a show which was created entirely in circo languages. And and um, circo, I, my work is based in in what I call languages, which are small algorithmic structures. Now. As dancers, you would understand the nature of a choreographic task, mm-hmm. um, but the diff- there's a key difference, which is a choreographic task is used by a choreographer to produce material, and that material is then, oh, I like the bit where you stop there and put your hand like that on your chin, mm-hmm. put our hands on our chin, let's do that in core and canon, let's do that mm-hmm. in unison, let's retrograde it, invert it, beautiful, okay, we're all there. Mm, okay. A, a, a language is like a, a spoken language. It's something you learn to speak. So we might say, let's let's the, a very simple language might be put your hand on a part of your body, right? Mm-hmm. And my aim in that is not to find a, a sliver of that that I can then use, but to actually develop the way that particular. So, for instance, um, we might say, put your hand on a part of your body you can almost not reach. Put your hand on a part of your body you can reach only in an incredibly difficult way. Put your head, right? And we can, we can, like any language, we can speak more and more complex things. Some of those things will be relevant and emotionally resonant, and many of them won't. So I, I made the show from a series of languages that everyone learned. Hmm. Our, and the show features our acrobats, it features independent circus artists here at Stanford, it features um, uh, participants from the Stanford Law. The, the sorry, arts intensive program, which is the program where students can come and study arts and get credit towards it in their summer break, and it features mm. children, and they all learn the same language. 
So essentially we're learning the same DNA and then it's growing up in different directions and then as we meet, as we mix and meet, it gets more complicated. So the whole thing is kind of a mess. Like it's kind of sort of because you, I never know what it's going to look like on a given night if the language is how we're all going to get from one end of this grid calling other, helping each other but feeling as organic as possible, then that's what it's going to be. And we know we want to try and roughly get there at the end of the time, but there's very little that is set. There are a few theatrical moments, but most of it is a kind of evolution of this, this DNA structure. And the complexity of 30, of 36 people is kind of, which is a you know pretty standard sort of dietary say a ballet company. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think it would take very long, but imagine you have 36 people in a row and you start to move them uh, into all the of combinations, uh, it's astronomically large. Right. Right. So uh, I don't know if you kind of like can conceive of how long that process would be if you took right. any number, but but to give you an idea, if you were to have one arrangement of 36 or fewer people and then move to another in a second and then move mm-hmm. to another in a second, in order to count all those combinations, you would have, if you counted like one per second, if you count seconds from the big bang until today you'd be nowhere close you'd actually have to count that on every single star in the universe mm-hmm. right. to get somewhere close to the number of combinations and that's just the order of people that's not whether they're standing or sitting it's not right. their hairs not their smiles or facial expressions so the complexity of like i can get 36 people to almost do the same thing seemed to me the most the least interesting thing i could do with them right. like i wanted i wanted the audience to and that's 36. That's not 36 million or 300 right. million people. That's not a body polity. That's not the kind of, you know, so we, we have these kind of grand feelings about people and how people are kind of, you know, there's always people there and 37% are Republicans and 24% think this. You know, no, that's look at what just how incredible and complex 36 human beings are. Right. Uh, go and see if after this you feel like your will on them or you know <laughs> i i wonder um how much wiggle room there is from one night to another if you went to the show two nights in a row would you see things that were very different or is it really set in stone exactly the same each night very different i can't i mean there, there's a structure and you probably if you weren't looking carefully think well most of those things happen there but mm-hmm. circus is circus is very much the art form of, of of the moment i mean you know it was andy walls and the sex two things you still need to be there for. And I think circus is or should be a legitimate third to that. Like they either do the thing or not. We will add things, but also there's just no way we're going to go in the same order. Right. Um, But the show kind of constantly challenges that. There's grids on the floor. There's grids in the air. There's structure. We rip grids up. We smash things together. We stack chairs and fall down. Like there's a whole bunch of things that kind of happen that, have randomness and the desire for order or the necessity of order built in. But mm. the, the conflict of the show happens. I mean, that's everything. It's, it's, it's inspiring to see that many people. It's inspiring to see. I mean, the kids, I think, like, I think having small kids around big adults is amazing on stage, uh, you know, not dressed as, you know, as, as, as kids, dressed as people. We're, we're a world. This is a kind of body politics. Um, and it was very, you know, it was very much inspired by Hobbes and his kind, his kind of political force. There's a very famous front of piece of, of Leviathan where the king is 
emerging like a monster from the sea, but when you're kind of zooming, you see that it's made up of all the people, uh, the kind of the body politic. And that, mm-hmm. that, that for me is, you know, it's a, it's actually modern political science, but it's also, I think, a, something that we're, we're very bad at understanding. I mean, like, as a, you know, like the question I think we should all, uh, we should all uh, be asking ourselves is prepared to compromise on what we're prepared to give up. Because unless we do that, we're, we're quite clearly doomed as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the question seems to be more and more: What's in it for me, and how can I make how can I make my bit better? Right. Um, which is, and, and, and you know, I I think at the end of the show, you just I have a profound feeling of the kind of the beautiful messed up complexity of being a human among other humans, which is what we all are. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know, if I can convey some of that energy, uh, the other that would be a beautiful thing. And the other thing that's beautiful is the actual experience of everyone doing it together. So you've got mm-hmm. kids, you've got adults. We have a seventy-plus-year-old woman in the show. We have wow. different, different, uh, you know, different ethnic backgrounds. We have different, you know, cultural backgrounds all mixed together, and we're doing it. And we're all actually doing this thing. We're learning the same. Every mm-hmm. cut the show. What the adults are doing, the kids, the independent artists, it's all the same. It's just at different levels. If you're one person high, two person high, three person high, four person high, you're still balancing upright with weight in some way, you know, mm-hmm. and that the rest is just kind of the the proteins that those DNA structures create. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about like what an amazing arc it's been for you coming in when the company, you know, it had a different name. It had the mission was unclear. You needed there was so much work to be done and now you're you're in a position to be presenting um you know super ambitious works abroad where do you see yourself taking circa in the next five ten years what what are you, what are some major goals you have yeah it's, it is it is interesting um it's a it's a uh, you know you know louise Gluck, the you know, wonderful poet who won the nobel prize and she has a by saying, you have betrayed me, Eros. You have sent me my one true love. Mm. <laughs> you know, what is, what is love without longing? You know, what mm. is fire without longing? Um, in, in a lot of ways, we have achieved many of the things that we set out to achieve, and I feel very, very proud of, of the team and of the work that we've done. Uh, on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of great opportunities. I, I, so our future, I First of all, we are coming out of a small viral disruption to our lives, and I think, um, and 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 I think, you know, no one is stable, no one is certain. I have a lot of hungry mouths to feed. We have a full-time ensemble of close to thirty artists. Um, we have a you know, team in Brisbane. We work all around the world. Those markets are really unstable, so we have to find a way to kind of keep everybody employed and. Um, Develop artists continue to make really exciting work. I think there's more collaborations with working in opera, visual artists in film world. Like there's a whole, you know, we're only scratching the surface of the ideas that are possible. Um, and then I think we we've we've got a new ensemble of those 30 artists, five are a new First Nations ensemble that's based out of Cairns in the north of mm-hmm. Queensland our state. Uh, so that's the First Nations-led ensemble, and I think our work in a cultural sphere is going to be increasingly important. 
as a core company, we're definitely is white. Um, and that's got to do so finding the pathways to, to bring in uh, a greater diversity of artists and have a different variety of kind of faces on stage, I think is a really important part of the next few years of our work. And I'm, I'm it's proving to be harder than we had wanted. Um, and I, you know, I'd like us to get rich. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'd love a, I'd love a, you know, a war horse or a stomp or something where you go, okay, now we can all kind of like we, we there's actually there is enough. Mm-hmm. Like, like not that we're we're not that we're having you know bathtubs full of money, but that we're just kind of we can we can breathe. I don't mind. I, I like the struggle, but I'm also you know it'd be really nice if we had a bit of a break every now and then. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Well, we really hope that all of our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area will go and see this show. It sounds fantastic. We can't wait to hear about it. We're sorry to be missing it, but we're so, so grateful that you took the time to talk with us. And we learned so much. It was so fascinating. The parallels with ballet are, are really very strong there. It's like everything you were, you were talking about, I was just like, yep, this is just our lives. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.